Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everybody. This is Jack Petranker. I am a host on the Politics and Polemics channel for New Books Network. And I'm very pleased to welcome here today Stephen B. Smith, who is the author of the book we're going to be talking about today, uh, which is called Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes, published by Yale University Press, where Stephen also teaches. So, Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I'm going to start off, as, as we usually do, by asking you to uh, just say a little bit about your background and what led up to your writing this book. I realize it's your area of expertise, but just generally, how did you come to be uh, doing this particular publication at this time? Uh, well, that uh, yeah, that could take a, uh, we could hold a whole seminar on my background and uh, how I came to write the book, but uh, obviously we don't want to do that. So I'll, I'll be relatively brief about this. Um, if you want some background, I'm originally from Chicago. Um, in fact, the book begins with a, uh, an epigraph from, uh, epigram from Saul Bellow, uh, a great book, The Adventures of Augie March, says, I am a Chicagoan. I'm an American Chicago born, uh, went to the University of Chicago and have been teaching where I studied political philosophy. And I've been teaching at Yale in the political science department for uh, 35 years or so since about 19, since 1984. Uh, the book uh, came to be written, well, it's it started as part of a course I would teach every year called an introduction to political philosophy. And it was a kind of great books course, you might say, Plato through Tocqueville. And I, I know, and, and always with a course, the question is how to, how to end it. It's like writing a play or a novel. The hardest thing is to movie script. How do you, how do you end the thing? And it occurred to me over the, over time, students, were very interested in the question, often sort of left unstated, but they were very interested in serving their country in some way. How, how can they serve? What can they, what can they do for their country? And it's not always, the answer to that question is not always evident. I mean, some like to go into the military service, but there are obviously many, many ways people can serve their country. And yet the universities... Uh, we're not really providing much help or incentive for helping young people find a way towards public service. And so I began to think about the question, what is higher education doing today to instill a sense of public service and a sense of of patriotism sort of broadly understood? So I began concluding my class with a lecture called In Defense of Patriotism, where I tried to argue that the great tradition of political philosophy, the great Western tradition that we, we study, has in many ways at its core the question of public service and, and love of country, uh, in a more deeper sense, sort of love of country inform, that informs the thinking of all of the great political philosophers, a question that has sort of been lost in our in our time, I think, uh, at least from the standpoint of intellectuals and professors and people 
charged with teaching these questions. So that's how I came to put the question of patriotism on the table, uh, at least in my classes. And over a period of time, I began to think I could turn this, what was really just one lecture, a 50-minute lecture, into a book. And the result of that was the book that we're, we're talking about today. It's a short book, a couple of hundred pages. Um, but in it, I put in pretty much everything I wanted to say about what is patriotism, what are the challenges to it, and how it should be best understood and practiced. Okay, great. And, and as you say um, fairly early on, you're, you're, it's kind of a minority view because a lot of people are down on patriotism these days. Right. Um, did, did you feel like, like you were having to mount a brief in favor of patriotism and kind of confront uh, your, the, op- the opposition? Sure, absolutely. Uh, one of the arguments of the book is that, the pr- yes, patri- let me just preface that by saying patriotism has always been a contested virtue. Uh, there are people who reject it, who, who claim it's not a virtue and not, a, not an admirable quality at all. And then on the other hand, uh, there are people who, shall we say, love it a little too much. And uh, in, in many ways, those two extremes uh, are found in different sort of demographics and different, different, different mindsets of different people. Certainly at the at the university where I teach among my colleagues and so on, one of the, one of the sort of unspoken pleasures that I had in writing the book is when people would ask me, you know, what are you writing about? What are you, what's, what's your next book on? And I said, well, I'm writing a, I'm writing a book on patriotism and watching the expression on their face, sometimes registering, you know, curiosity and, interest, sometimes rep- sometimes expressing a kind of shock and horror as if I uh, as if I uh, professed to some just to some grievous grievous sin of some kind. <laughs> and uh, so yes, absolutely the, the book, uh, at least among my colleagues and, and many people has has received a, a response, I would say yeah. <laughs> so, so um, have you been getting angry emails saying, "How could you possibly defend patriotism?" Yeah, not really. I mean, people. Do, yeah, I mean, people, and not really. Uh, I wouldn't say I've, I've received angry emails. I, I've had some. Uh, I've had it, in giving. I've over the over the last years, couple of couple of years or so, as I was writing the book, uh, I did some. I, we do. Things. I mean, I was sort of workshopping uh, various chapters of the book at different universities and colleges. You asked asked to give a talk, and so I sort of was trying out different different chapters of of, of the book to to different audiences. And uh, I won't mention the na- I won't mention the name of particular programs and universities, but I, I received some very very hostile. Uh, responses from 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 a number a number of of places of, of places about this. Not really angry emails, but I would say I got some quite quite hostile pushback uh, from from academic uh, philosophers, in particular, who disliked the idea that love of country is a virtue and a valuable uh, quality. 
And, and I suppose part of that has to do with um, something that you point out in the book. I mean, clearly, these are the concerns that you're grappling with. But um, I, I think I'm quoting you here. You say mm-hmm. the right has weaponized patriotism. Yeah. So especially, I suppose, in, in more liberal circles, mm-hmm. uh, if you're favoring patriotism, it seems like you're coming to the defense of right-wing views. Is that part of what's going on? That, that's one of the stereotypes. Yes, that's, that's one of the caricatures of patriotism that, that comes from the left uh, principally. And it, and it comes from, a, I think, a misunderstanding of, of, what, of what patriotism is. Uh, the idea that uh, if you're a patriot uh, or patriotism uh, is some form of, uh, represents some form of exclusion between ins and outs, between draw, drawing lines between, between friend and enemy, in, ins and outs, and also trying to, you, you know, it was clearly in the last, over the last four years too, uh, the defense of patriotism a person like myself defending patriotism as I was in a number of times accused, I was providing support either directly or indirectly for the Trump administration, for border walls, for xenophobia, for racism, and some of the uglier uh, or ugliest aspects uh, of the, of the last administration. And uh, that was of course very far from my intention to try to do that. In fact, uh, in fact, one of the purposes of, of writing the book was to try to show people on the, uh, I would say, the center left, uh, not to give up on patriotism, not to abandon patriotism, because it is a, it is an important American, it's, a, it's an important value, it's an important American value, and it, it would be a, mis- it is a serious mistake uh, for those of, I would say, the center left to abandon that or to be bullied uh, into um, being intimidated to, uh, to reject or to, yeah, to, re- to reject patriotism. Right. So, so I think one way you get at that, which I found very helpful, it was something I certainly hadn't thought about, um, was to make a, a, draw a very sharp line, a, a line of demarcation between patriotism and nationalism. Mm-hmm. So could you say something about that? Yeah, that's, that is, I think, an important, very, thanks for bringing that up, because that is an important distinction in the book. Uh, the, what I try to do in defining patriotism is to say patriotism should be seen uh, on a continuum with two extremes on either side of it. Uh, we've been talking about one of those extremes that is kind of the leftist uh, rejection, repudiation of patriotism as sort of synonymous with xenophobia and 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 uh, xenophobia and perhaps racism and so on. But on the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to distinguish patriotism on the other extreme from nationalism. Nationalism is a kind of excessive zeal. Uh, and one of the things I argue in the book is that patriotism and nationalism grow out in many ways of a common root. Uh, they grow out of a desire to have one's country and one's way of life to be respected and strong. I think that's a, a need to belong to a, a people, be part of a people. I think that these are natural and legitimate human aspirations. But that patriotism and nationalism once they grow, although growing out of a common root, move 
in different directions. Nationalism, and I developed this at some length in the book, morphs into an ideology of grievance and resentment. Uh, it is about identifying enemies, about identifying others, uh, to use the language that we've heard a lot recently, to identifying enemies of the people is showing they are not part of us. This group is not, is not part of us. Uh, get that ugly side to it. Patriotism is a different uh, moral and emotional register to it. It's not, an, it's not a language of us versus them or friend versus enemy. It speaks an attitude of gratitude uh, for what we have become, for shaping a way of life that has made us who we are and creates a common way of life, flourishing uh, way of life for people. Uh, and patriotism far from uh, suggesting an attitude of sort of uh, self-satisfaction or, or somehow one of the accusations, oh, patriotism always being accused of something, that uh, being accused of that it, it, it airbrushes over the, uh, the um, uh, sins of our, of our past, that patriotism is capable of being self-critical and self-reflective. This is what I call in the, in the sort of penultimate chapter of my book, I, it, which is entitled Enlightened Patriotism. It's a patriotism of self-reflection and even when necessary, self-criticism. But self-criticism that grows not out of resentment and not out of a desire to exclude, but out of a sense of gratitude and love. Yeah, you, you make the comparison, which I think is helpful, between patriotism and your loyalty, and the word loyalty figures prominently here, um, and your loyalty to your family, let's mm -hmm. say. It's, it's, you, know, yep. you can be loyal to your family without saying, well, we're the best family. You know, nobody's ever been as good as we are. Uh, and uh, uh, something like that seems to be what you have in mind with patriotism also. That's exactly right. Uh, patriotism is a, a form of loyalty. And I, I spend a fair bit of time in the book, trying to sort of parse what I, what, why, why loyalty is a virtue, what, what loyalty is. But ultimately, yes, in trying to define patriotism as love of country, we can see, we can see patriotism or patriotic loyalty as part of a sort of concentric circle uh, of loyalties. We have, you know, we live in a, in a circle of, of loyalties, loyalty to family, loyalty to friends, loyalty to religious groups, loyalty to associations, to sports teams, and loyalty to country. Um, we live in a, in a circle of loyalties. And also, one of the claims I want to make about this is that these loyalties can and, and do, do come into conflict. Um, if we only, if, unless we just had one friend, uh, our loyalties to friends may may come into conflict. Our loyalties between, again, religion and country or family and country may come into conflict. Uh, and one of the points of the book is to look at the way in which uh, loyalty to country, patriotism, therefore, is part of this, this larger web of loyalties that, that we inhabit as citizens. And this is, of course, always what makes... Patriot, patriotism, uh, a contested virtue, because our loyalties will uh, be in, in will be in contest with one another. I, I give 
many examples of this in the book, sometimes from literature, from film, and of course from, from real uh, everyday experience in history. So, you know, one thing I thought of while I was um, reading the book or reviewing it for the purposes of this podcast was just to think about my own situation a little. It, it's not an ideal case, but but it raised some questions for me. And, and that is, um, so I am an immigrant. My parents were immigrants. They were refugees from Nazi Germany, and they lived in China for 10 years. Mm. And I was born in China. Um, so then I come to this country, actually first to Canada, but then by the age of four, um, I, I was living in the United States. And so I certainly grew up absorbing a sense of, of this is my country. And, and that's absolutely how I feel about it. But if I ask, well, what, what's the basis for that, say, in terms of um, my background, there are so many other things in my country, in my background. I'm, I'm kind of a latecomer to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I suppose you'd say, well, it has to do with just absorbing this culture as I grew up. And and to some extent, and we'll talk about this more later, I think, but to some extent, maybe the, you know, what you learn. I mean, I'm studying American history in school. I'm not studying, you know, German history or Chinese history or anything else. So, so I'm picking it up that way. But you do get into the question of multiculturalism, but just thinking about my own background helped me kind of make that more tangible and real. Would you like to comment on that? Right. Well, Jack, uh, wow, that's an incredible story that that you tell of your your background. Uh, Very, very impressive. Uh, One one of the things I've observed, uh, you know, you don't have to write a book on this to observe it often, is that it is immigrants and children of immigrants uh, who are among our most patriotic citizens. Uh, there is, again, perhaps because they do not take our country for granted in quite the same way, that they feel a deep sense, a deeper, deeper sense of gratitude for the safety, the security, the freedoms uh, that are provided then by by many others who, who are, who too easily, I would say, take these things for granted. Uh, The best remedy for that, uh, I mean, I was a grandchild. I'm a grandchild of immigrants. Uh, uh, came from uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, whether they came here to escape, you know, persecution, or whether they came just for economic benefits, we don't really know. My grandparents didn't talk much. About it. They didn't talk much. About it. They didn't didn't talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it. But they were, and I, I probably as a child didn't really have the curiosity to, uh, to, to, to inquire, to, to try to find out more. But, uh, but I do think there is a, a sense in which, uh, you know, people who are new Americans, I mean, in, interesting, we, we call them naturalized citizens, people who, who come here and from, from abroad and take a test to, to see if they pass the citizenship test. Uh, become some of our most uh, loyal and, and patriotic citizens, and I, I think that to me is one reason why. In the image, I'm sort of moving perhaps away from the question a bit, but in the immigration debate, 
that we have today. And it's a genuine debate and uh, it's a serious question and, and it's a genuine debate. But I, I see that the people who want it, who are escaping, who are fleeing some form of persecution, uh, in your case, and sort of the extreme case, your parents came here to escape Nazi persecution, but come here not just for a better life, but they come because they they want to embrace the creed, the ideals that the uh, country stands for. Uh, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that we are a creedal people. There is a kind of a, an informal American creed, a set of beliefs and values that shape the identity, uh, shape the character of, of, America, of American citizenship uh, and, and the American way of life that is in many ways crucial to the to the concept of the whole concept of patriotism. Yeah, that makes very good sense to me. My my um, my parents, especially my father, used to talk a lot about America as as the land of opportunity, which of course is a something that you hear immigrants say a lot. But I'm thinking now, and and I I don't mean to get so much into my background because this is about you and your book, but but just as a way of maybe exploring these things. Um, so I'm involved in a Buddhist organization, and the Tibetan Lama who founded the organization and continues to be active in it and has lived in America for 50 years, um, has written a lot of books. He will almost never write anything where he doesn't start by expressing his gratitude to America for not only the opportunity, but especially the freedom of religion mm-hmm. that, that, that operates here. And he, and he will say, you know, without that, I couldn't have done any of the things I've done. It's, it's just made it all possible. No, that's so, a really, really yeah. beautiful story. And, and I think it's very often, it's not necessarily the case, but it's very often the case that religious people uh, understand or at least appreciate that more because the freedom of religion uh, is, again, such a valuable aspect of the American experience. And, you know, if you're a secularist, you can, we can give lip service to that idea, but it doesn't quite affect us. In, uh, I say us, you know, in the sense of a sec being, if you're a secularist, you don't, it doesn't quite affect you in the same way as it does if you were a, a person of faith, as we say. That's, that's right. No, that makes good sense to me. But it did raise a question in my mind. This, this idea, I think, of America as a creedal nation is really important. Um, but I wondered, would that lead you to say that there are countries in the world where people can't be patriotic in that same sense? That's a question. That's a great question. Thank you for that. And it's one that I struggle with in the book uh, to a considerable degree. And I, the, the answer to that is, is of course, People in other other countries can be patriotic, of course. I'm not denying denying that. Uh, but the book, uh, although the book, uh, the discussion of patriotism sort of ranges widely. Uh, I talk about patriotism in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world, in the Roman world, uh, in the in the early modern times of the American Revolution, and so on. It kind of ranges historically. Uh, it focuses largely on the American case and what is unique about American patriotism. It's not, I'm not arguing for a moment that other, pe- other people and other peoples can't be patriotic, of course, but there is something different uh, about American patriotism. Uh, in par- and, and what makes it different is in part, it's, I use this word, you picked it up, this cr- the creedal character of American 
life. We are, as I describe in the book, we are a people of the book, or maybe we should say people of the books. Uh, the Puritan founders who came here uh, from England and Holland, they thought of themselves as creating a new Jerusalem here. They, they brought with them books. They brought with them the scripture and thought of themselves as creating um, a, a new world, a new people, a new Jerusalem in a way in, in, in this world. Uh, the founding fathers, the constitutional framers, clearly created a written text, uh, the Constitution, the first written constitution in history, uh, a written text that has become sort of our pole star of, 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 our, of our identity, um, which has in turn created, you know, volumes of commentary on, on, on the Constitution. So from the beginning, we have been, what has made American patriotism unique is this, is what I'm calling this creedal character that our, our our identity is, is rooted in ideas and values. And to me, the root uh, of that is, of course, the Declaration of Independence with its claim that all men are created equal. It gives us, it, it, it describes from equality, possession of certain rights, government by consent. And the Constitution was an attempt to give a sort of institutional expression to these, to these fundamental ideas. But throughout our history, Americans have always been a people of ideas, a people of creeds, a people of um, who held uh, this, uh, who who held again this creedal character of of our of our republic, of our of our nation as as of high value. And I think that's what, in many ways, distinguishes American patriotism from from other other forms. Without denying that, of course, other other people can other peoples uh, have their own forms of patriotism too. But this is about sort of what makes our form different in many many ways. So um, it, let me bring up an example that I just happened to come across the other day. I I have never known this that in uh, in the state of Texas, when you recite the Pledge of Allegiance, which certainly plays into all this. You, I, I don't quite know how it works, but you apparently also recite a pledge to the state of Texas. I pledge allegiance to the state of Texas, um, which I grew up in California. And <laughs> that would have come as a surprise, I think. Yes. I, mean, I would have. <laughs> um, so, is that a form of patriotism, or is it sort of a nationalism brought down to the state level? Or? Yeah, it's um, yes. Uh, you know, I, it's funny. I, I it must have been in the news recently because I, I saw or read read the same the same story as well uh you might say it's i mean yeah it, in connecticut it would be very it would be a very strange thing to for people say we pledge allegiance to the state of connecticut it doesn't quite have the same ring there's always there's always a certain kind of texas exceptionalism i say and i think probably that's goes with the part of the fact that Texas had been its own independent republic at one time before it begged to become part of the U.S. and part of the Union. And then, of course, it was part of the Southern Rebellion. So the Texans haven't, I'll I'll probably make some enemies here, but the Texans haven't been exactly the most loyal citizens uh, of the U.S. over 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 the years, and I, I I feel I can say that in part because I'm 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 partly Texan, uh, by the way. I I which is to say I I taught at the university before coming to Yale. I taught at the University of Texas for two years, and my son was was actually born in Austin. So I can I can claim a little bit of Texas heritage there when I 
when I when I when I rag on them too a little bit. But like I say, I think the the Texans are a little bit of a case un, unto themselves, and I think maybe despite and they're, they're I, I I don't know I'm a little worried about them. You know, I question altogether <laughs> their uh, their loyalties, but. Okay. Well, I might want to well, push back on that. Yeah. Yeah, right. If we'll, we'll, pe- people shouldn't take that out of context. Probably. Okay. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, so, um, but it, it does kind of um, lead to the, another question or something you bring up in the book is that, that um, there is a, a sense in which we're moving away in this country from the kind of national narrative that would ordinarily support patriotism, mm-hmm. right? And going toward multiculturalism yeah. is the word you use. Mm-hmm. There are other ways you could talk about it. pluralism. That's that's very true, and you know, nat- that was also a important incentive for me in in, in writing this book. Uh, the language of, I mean, we are of course we are a, a nation of immigrants. We are a people of many cultures, but. But the language and the ideology of multiculturalism is not one that simply, you know, celebrates our distinctive heritages and points of origin, but is one that's sort of created in order to divide and to separate Americans from one another, to question, and in fact, to demean our national narrative by presenting it as a way of, of trying to obliterate our, our different different points of origin. And this, I think, is, is deeply wrong and, and deeply, deeply flawed. Um, probably one of, the, one of the most powerful and or at least current expressions of this kind of demeaning of our national narrative is the... Uh, is this the 1619 project, as it's called, which is something that's been fostered by the New York Times, which is one that basically centers our national narrative on, on racism and slavery, is the irreparable sin and essence of American life. Uh, and this is, you know, this to me is uh, it really poses an educational uh, challenge to anybody who wants to take take our country seriously and to pre- present a, a positive uh, narrative of, of who we are and one of the things one of the thing one of the reasons why I cannot possibly accept this view is that it demeans uh, the efforts the struggles the heroic struggles of generations of Americans both both of white and black of all races uh, to overcome slavery and to overcome racism and to create a more inclusive sense of America. If you believe, uh, as many, many do today, that, uh, that racism is just somehow baked into the DNA of this country, then you're saying that all of these efforts that have gone before have essentially been for naught. And this is this is just something. Um, certainly, Martin Luther King didn't believe that. Rosa Parks didn't believe that. All of the great uh, heroes of the abolitionist and the civil rights movement never lost faith in this country, 
they never for a moment believed that the country was based on some kind of ineradicable sense of, of racial hierarchy and dominance, and all believed that uh, America, the American promise was was one that was was held out for all peoples of all races. Yeah, so it's it's again it's a kind of a question of going from one extreme to the other. On, on the one hand, there's the idea of American exceptionalism, uh, and and then on the other hand, there's this sense that exceptional, yes, but in the sense that there is something exceptionally wrong that is mm-hmm. rooted in our in our as you say, in our DNA, to mix metaphors. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of a depict, it's kind of a reverse depiction of, of, uh, of, of the American, of the American dream. Uh, it, it presents America again, not only is rooted in racism and in kind of inner slavery and a kind of ineradicable racism, uh, the language often ascribed uh, to the founding of the United States is one of settler colonialism. It's been rooted also in ge- the genocide of Native Americans. I mean, you can, I mean, my my book doesn't for a moment deny uh, the the sins of, of the past. And one of the claims I make is that patriotism not only uh, is based, as I said, on a kind of loyalty and pride in one's national accomplishments, one's national accomplishments, but it's based also on the possibility of shame and self-correction, which is to say, I mean, we only feel shame at the faults of, of our own. I mean, I don't, I, I don't feel shame at the, I don't feel shame at the misdeeds of other nations. I might, I might be angry, angered by them. I might, uh, resent them or, or whatnot, but I don't feel shamed by them. I, it, it's only our, our own country's misdeeds that I, I'm capable of feeling a sense of shame for. So pride and shame are equally parts of what, of what patriotism is. And American patriotism, again, at its best, is one that has struggled uh, to achieve a, a greater degree of, of inclusiveness. Uh, just to take one example that's drawn from the book, uh, consider the case of uh, of American uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winners who in the past were denied or overlooked this great honor because of their race and then were subsequently give it, given the, given the medal given the medal uh, that seems to be an act of what I would call patriotic self-correction or self-criticism and an effort to expand uh, the conception of, of of the American of the American family, right? I, I, so, so do you think that? Well, let me put it this way: um, Do you feel that there is something about patriotism that has been lost, um, and and that we should be teaching more toward the ideal of patriotism? You know, I, I had a civics class in high school that was really my least favorite class. Oh, God, yes. That's the problem. Every, uh, yes, I mean, uh, everybody's civics class from a certain generation, uh, that was always the worst class that they ever had in school, certainly was in mine, and it had a lot to do with the, with the texts, the textbooks, and, and the, way, the, way, the way civics was, was taught. It was such a yawn. Um, I do believe uh, that we have lost something. Uh, schools and Colleges and universities have, to some 
some degree, maybe to a considerable degree, uh, sort of given up on teaching patriotism as a value. And, and one of the points I make in the book is that, that patriotism is something that must be taught. Uh, it's not just something we sort of, it's something in a way we, we can naturally imbibe. Students get up in class, they say the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, which is a routine, but like every routine, it, it, has, it has its value, you might say. But it is, some, it is something that has to, be, has to be taught, and students need to learn how, and what would be the best way. Uh, part of the book deals with how, how we could teach patriotism. And I think just to give a quick answer to to beginning point of departure to think about that is one of the ways it could be taught is by introducing the teaching of the the basic primary texts of the American founding, Uh, getting students to read and to discuss and to take seriously the Declaration of Independence, to read the Constitution, to read some of the Federalist papers. Those are, can be difficult, but they're not beyond the competence of a, of a high school student to read, you know, to be reading some of the Federalist Papers, read, read some of the anti-Federalist Papers, read, read the debate. And I think once you begin to introduce students to the, again, the fundamental texts of the American founding and of, of, of the American experience, um, they, you develop a, a deeper, a much deeper appreciation for the country and for what we stand for than from just the often cliched views that are handed down in textbooks and other other pot boilers of, of different kinds. Uh, so that would be, that that I think is, is one way: reading the texts, reading reading speeches and letters of our of our most prominent. Uh, statesman, I, I don't. I it, reading. I mean, for just to take a kind of an example from the from the last century, uh, if students were to read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, an extraordinary statement that draws on the deepest philosophical and intellectual resources of the American, and in many ways also the larger Western tradition. I can't think of a better way. Uh, of introducing uh, kind of patriotism uh, to America. Read read Frederick Douglass's uh, "What to the What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July." I mean, which looks at the question of loyalty and who be- who belongs and and who ought to belong. Uh, these are these were texts, really speeches, letters written by by great uh, American patriots, critical to be sure, and that that was part of it. Uh, in their in their desire to become part of this extended family. So yeah, that would be a far cry from my civics class. I, I have cry. to. Mine too. <laughs> I have to agree. Um, and, and I have been struck when I read from time to time how poorly informed people are about really basic things about our country. You know, what are the three branches of government? I think something like a third of of adult Americans can give an answer to that. It's, it's pretty sad. Uh, they probably I, it, took the same civics course that you and I did. <laughs> right. Well, it's you know it's kind of a funny coincidence. I didn't think about it until we started talking. But a good friend of mine who's lived in this country for years um, is today. I guess it's over by now. Um, taking his citizenship test, mm-hmm. and and so I was talking with him about it a little bit, and they give you a list of a hundred questions, um, 
and I don't know exactly what they cover. We didn't go into it too much. But, um, you know, they tell you the answers, so you can memorize them. I mean, I suppose that's what people basically set out to do. But at least if you've done that, you've you've got something under your belt. You're prepared to say something. And I suppose that they must cover history, but, but this notion of a creedal nation, you know, that there are things that we hold not only self-evident, that's part of it, mm-hmm. but but um, things that, that go to make up the national character. This is who we are as Americans. So, I think that's that's central to uh, my my thesis that there are a common a set a core set of values and beliefs uh, equality a belief in equality equal human dignity that individuals count for something and of, are of value in and of themselves of liberties and rights of limited government of, of a kind of diversity and pluralism. We are a, a people, we are not We are not simply uniform. Our, our patriotism embraces a plurality of, of, of human types and individuals. Um, there, there, are, there, is, is a core, uh, there are, there's a core set of uh, beliefs, ideals that inform uh, the American character and American identity uh, that have shaped that have shaped us that that in many ways continue to evolve and in, in, in many ways as, as we respond to new circumstances. But what again? Let me just mention a point uh, since you you raised that question again about the the creed. Uh, one of the arguments that I make throughout the book is that in fact our patriotism has kind of two two sides to it. It, it does have this creedal side. Which I think is very important. We are we are a people of ideas and beliefs. Uh, we speak about um, the American dream and things like this. The aspirational character of of, of American patriotism is, is very important. But patriotism is not is not just or not only the beliefs we have. It's it's a it's a sentiment. It's a sentiment. Uh, Tocqueville. Uh, who figures prominently in my book, Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French uh, philosopher who came here in the 1830s and wrote this magnificent book, uh, Democracy in America. Uh, he understood that patriotism was what he called a habit of the heart. It was a beautiful term that's been used m- many times before. It's, patriotism is not only a sense of the head, but it is of the heart. It's not only a question of thinking, but of feeling. Uh, in the book, I, I use a couple of fancy terms for this. I, say, I use two Greek terms. It's not only logos, but it's ethos. It's both rational, but it's also based in an ethos, in, a, in our moral habits, our dispositions, our felt sentiments, and so, our desires and sentiments. Patriotism, again, is something that we feel. We not only, again, it's, it's, it's creedal, but it's also something that's deeply felt. And it's hard to hold those two together necessarily. But um, Tocqueville had something of that appreciation, I think, as did Lincoln, who, uh, who's a figure in the book. Uh, we haven't brought him up yet, but in many ways is the hero of the book uh, for me, Abraham Lincoln, and showed to me uh, what patriotism at, at its best can, can be, aspiration based in moral equality, it can be aspirational, and it can speak to uh, it, it's, it speaks to the, the, the most profound imperative of, of human beings, the desire 
for freedom. Right. So, so yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Lincoln. I hadn't really um, come away with a sense that he was the hero of the book, but you certainly do refer to him. Um, and, and I think I can understand it in terms of what you've been saying. I, I, I want to contrast that just a little, as you do, to um, cosmopolitanism. That's um, So, you know, you fairly early on in the book, you quote George Bernard Shaw, and it's a wonderful quote. I, I don't have it. I don't think I have it word for word. But but he said, uh, he said, well, my country is special, obviously, because I was born in it. Um, <laughs> and, and so... Um, you know that's a sort of a reductio ad absurdum, right? That that uh, as a way of saying, well, how can you really justify having special feelings? But again, I suppose it's like having special feelings for your family. Um, but um, you know, you really say that the cosmopolitan or a, a, a universalist cosmopolitan approach kind of has drifted away from that, um, and maybe has drifted away from the heart, right? Right. So, no, cosmopol. Yes, I mean, I, we we spoke a little bit earlier about nationalism and patriotism, and I said how nationalism is kind of an excessive uh, form or an excessive expression, a kind of corruption of, of patriotism. Uh, cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism represents a kind of uh, uh, denial of the value of patriotism. Uh, I mean, cosmopolitanism is something that has deep roots in the Western tradition, this idea of being a citizen, of the, literally what it means to be a citizen of the world, the, the cosmopolis, the, the, the cosmos, the, the city of the world, to be a citizen of the world is something that goes back to the, it's a Greek, it's a Greek term, it goes back to the first and second centuries, uh, Greek philosophers, Stoics who believe this idea, and, and in many ways, cosmopolitanism has always had uh, its attractions. Uh, and in our time, uh, it has had renewed attention given to it. Uh, we can talk, we could talk about why that's the case, but of course, the most obvious reason is we live in a far more globalized world. We're, we're a world that's brought together by trade, by commerce, by travel, by immigration, you know, the border borders seem to be increasingly porous, open, um, the EU has experimented with, you know, a common passport, so common currency. The old national borders don't mean the same thing any longer. And, of course, today our problems uh, have become increasingly global. Uh, think of our pan the pandemic, COVID. Think of global warming, things like this. Our problems have to be tackled from a kind of cosmopolitan you can't be just done by one country. So there's a lot of reasons out there uh, people have adopted for thinking that we need to move beyond patriotism. We need to uh, think of ourselves as global citizens, citizens of the world, and not give particular attachment to any one country uh, to which we belong. I mean, I recognize the force of these arguments and think there, there is some, something to them. Uh, to be sure, and many of our problems, deeply intractable problems, can only be handled through international cooperation and so on. But that, that to me, is not to deny, or in fact, it, it really ends up denying uh, the importance of, of, our, of, our, of our nations and, and different peoples. 
if 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 you take democracy seriously, as as I do, um, democracies are only possible uh, within the context of nation states, particular states. We don't have any example, and I don't believe we we will ever ever we will ever have any example of a truly global democracy, um, representative institutions, and so on, uh, voting and political parties and things that we associate with democracies. These are all part of the national fabric uh, in, which we, we, in which we live. And our problems, whatever they are, will have to be tackled by states working in cooperation, but we will not, they will not be tackled, as it were, without the cooperation of individual states. Um, it also, it, it overlooks something very valuable. Uh, I mean, I'll say something that's been said before, you know, to be a citizen of the world is to be a citizen of nowhere. Uh, it, it, it alienates us, it uproots us from the things that are dearest and most precious to us. Uh, it, it makes us, uh, it makes us feel lost in a way. What, what are, what are we? citizens of the world, but it's a, it's a lonely and, and ultimately a kind of loveless disposition that I don't think is, is, I don't think can be sustained at a, at a kind of mass level, let's say. So, yeah, there's much, there's much in cosmopolitanism I find to regret. Okay. So, so, um, it does remind me a little of, of the historical situation that you describe between the, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists at the beginning of our mm-hmm. Republic. And, and um, if I understood your, you correctly, you were saying that the Anti-Federalists made the argument, and I'm, I'm thinking that it sounds a little bit like what you're saying about cosmopolitanism. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you can never be patriotic toward this United States, yeah. because you belong to a particular state. Right. right. I mean, the the, um, the anti-federalists uh, were what we might call the localists. Uh, they believed, right, that the idea of a national union was too large. It would be, and of course, obviously, it was much smaller then than in the country we have now. But of course, so were possibilities of transportation and the like much, much more limited. So the country may have seemed vast but that's true they were they were the localists and uh you know we we still have that debate uh clearly i mean you could say well the 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 federalists in a way you could say they won the argument the the federalist authors were the were the uh were the uh, constitutional framers and those who those who wrote and established and defended the constitution and yet the anti-federalist argument didn't simply go away. I mean, they may have lost the, the they might they may have lost the battle, but they didn't necessarily lose the war. And the anti-federalist disposition has been very powerful among us ever since. I mean, the Civil War was in many ways a kind of a struggle over a of an unresolved question. I mean, which is prominent? Which which has priority? Is it the state, the individual states, or is it the union? The example you gave Jack a little while ago about the Texas Pledge of, Indi- of, of Allegiance, which is to the state of Texas, uh, also kind of courts that anti-federalist disposition, that it's the individual state that has the uh, local, local uh, primacy. And in many ways, our, our 
national um, identity is shaped, has been fundamentally shaped by, by, by that tension, by that conflict between localist and national uh, loyalties and, uh, and, and ambitions. So, yeah, you're right to point out, I think that's really correct to point out that the uh, uh, anti-federalists were among the first to level that charge against the constitutional framers. But in the end, it does still leave us. I, I, and I suppose, you know, the, the, the more, the further we slide into modernity or now post-modernity, as, as you say, we are now a, uh, a global culture in many ways. And, and it doesn't, you know, for better or worse. I mean, you know, if you, if you go to, uh, if I went to Texas, uh, I think I will be going to Texas fairly soon for the conference. Um, if I went to Texas and I wanted to go out and buy something, I would have all the same stores to draw on, you know, in Texas that I would here. So, so there's this kind of uniformity that maybe does favor uh, a kind of national view. Um, let, let me ask you one thing that isn't really part of your book, but it made me wonder, I just hadn't ever thought about it before, um, and, and that is the term nation-state. So why do why is it hyphenated? You know, what's the wait, can there be a nation without a state? Can there be a state without a nation? Oh yes, what's, I mean there there can be uh, nations without states. Uh, I mean one of the one of the chapters uh, gives a kind of genealogy of nationalism and how it how it arose and uh, nationalism came into its own in the late eighteenth century. Uh, with the appreciation that there are different peoples with different cultures, that that's a kind of modern word, culture. We take it for granted, but it is a kind of modern term, different cultures. And what defined culture, according to the early nationalists, of the, was the language that people, um, the, the language that expressed their poetry, their music, their, their kind of identity. Language was not simply a mode of communicating information. It was a form of self-expression of, of who people are, their basic instincts and so on were embedded in their language. Uh, but that didn't necessarily mean that they had a state. Uh, and in fact, the early defenders of nationalism uh, were in many ways kind of apolitical about it. They did not necessarily identify the nation with the state. That came a bit later, and I don't want to go into the whole uh, rigmarole about it, but uh, although maybe the development seems inevitable, but by the early 19th century, uh, there became an, an increased demand that every nation, that is to say every culture, every linguistic group, every cultural group needs to be represented by a state. And of course, in the 19th century, uh, that was the age of the great empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire. You know, these were were multi, the the Ottoman Empire, these were multi-glot peoples, you know, with different nations all under their imperial Rule. They were often given considerable freedom and considerable autonomy, but there was no idea that each, each of these peoples should have a state. That became increasingly the case after World War I, when the, when the great empires were broken up, the language of national self-determination 
uh, came to dominate uh, the political language, the, the theory and practice of empire came to be looked down upon. So the idea of that, yes, this hybrid, uh, this, this hybrid political form, the nation state hyphenated is a distinctively modern uh, characteristic or a distinctly modern political form only grew out of the, uh, you know, the period after the French, in Europe, especially after the French Revolution and in the period, uh, you know, going up to the up to the 20th century. And of course, you know, we live in a world that, that defines, uh, we live, the nation state has also been one of the most adaptive and adaptable uh, political forms. Those are the basic forms of political legitimacy today. Um, I believe that. Uh and which is one reason I am uh, skeptical, to say the least, of proposals for various forms of global government, governance of transnational forms of, of political rule, because I, I really think only the nation state has provided a stable foundation for democratic governments. That might take us in a different direction, but you asked, so that's uh, where I am on this. <laughs> Right. No, there'd be a lot to, to discuss lot there. To yeah, much to yeah. on. Yeah. Right. But it does, what you say about language, I can't remember if it's in your book, but it's something I read recently. It just said, well, show me all the great literature that's been written in Esperanto. Yeah, there was, there was, uh, that was the great Robert Pinsky's uh, observation. Yes, right. Show okay, me. right. He asked, who is the Shakespeare of Esperanto? He's right, like, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think we're we're drawing to a close, but but I'd like to hear from you a little bit, Stephen. Uh, what what are you working on now? Where are you headed? Well, I'm looking. Uh, I'm I'm looking at a couple of different projects. One of which might be something of a sequel to the Patriotism book, uh, partly because I've received a lot of interesting feedback on it. And, and people have had a lot of ideas. I'm I'm sort of looking at a, at, at the project a little bit more of an of an empirical thing. I want to I want to I'd like to look at and talk to uh, ordinary Americans about what they think patriotism is, and to try to put this you know in a kind of uh, popular uh, more popular form and look looking at the way in which patriotism is understood by citizens going to local bars, diners, and, and other, other popular hangouts. And it'll give me a chance to hang out with them, too, and interview some people and get some feedback from them on what they think patriotism is, and maybe do something of a sequel to the, uh, to the book here we've been talking about. That, that'll be interesting. Are you thinking you'd travel around the country? I would love to do that. That is, that is sort of my uh, goal. Uh, you know, uh, you know. Uh, uh, after a year of lockdown, the idea of having a kind of road trip, where you know, going to different parts of the country, including Texas, by the way, uh, <laughs> where would to talk to people ab- about this, I think I think would be would be something I would I would love to do. Um, I hope my university gives me a little bit of time off so I could I could do that. <laughs> okay. Well, that yeah, that sounds like it'd be a very interesting project. So. Okay, well, Stephen, I'm supposed to say your last name, so I will, Stephen Smith. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for taking the time, and um, we'll look forward to, to what happens next. Jack, it's, it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much. 
you for your questions and the chance to talk about the book with you and your audience. 